Listener Production. Okay, are you recording? Hi guys, you are listening to episode 77 of the Howie Games. Party off the top, thanks to all you cool cats for tuning in. And if anyone out there has recommended the show to someone this week, the Howie Games salutes you. It is outstanding, truly, because it allows the show to continue to grow, which in turn means we can keep rolling out more episodes. This week's it. it is the perfect example of all the good stuff in life. Going out on a limb, having a crack, defying the odds... It features a fantastic fellow by the name of Phil Anderson. Phil is a trailblazer in Australian cycling. The very first non-European to wear the yellow jersey in the Tour de France, which was a massive deal at the time. Victories in some of the biggest classics in the caper, a couple of Commonwealth Games gold medals, and so, so, so much more. But for me, the real joy in this episode is Phil's ability to tell some incredible stories about a time Well, sport at that stage wasn't quite so professionally packaged, monitored and scientific. Phil's was a wonderfully outrageous time of pre-race stakes, mid-race Coca-Colas, no helmets, a lot of risk admittedly, long-distance phone calls back home and plenty of fluoro bike gear. Mystery, what is to be? So much more than meets the eye. Listen to me, time is your key. You will find out by and by. You will hear in this episode a reference to an advertisement starring Phil in Part B. Whatever you do, at some stage, please Google it. It is all that is good in the world, that ad. And while you're at it, check out a few photos of Phil in the day. He put the S in style. Part B of the episode is where Phil really begins to let loose with some outrageous stories that will make you laugh and shake your head at the same time. Phil has a ripper website, a ripper website, philandersoncycling.com.au from where you can join him on some amazing cycling tours including the Vuelta in Spain you actually ride with Phil on his trips, how good is that? Check it out, philandersoncycling.com.au go cycling with Phil You can do it if you try, try, try If you try, try, try To put it simply, after being lucky enough to spend a couple of hours with the great man, the best way to describe Phil Anderson is that he is a ripping, ripping bloke. Enjoy Phil Anderson, OAM. So when you search and then you find And know just where to go And thoughts that once used to cloud your mind You see clearly and now you know Mystery, what is to be revealed in King Selassie I Come on, children, try with me. We want to reach Mount Zion. Phil Anderson, welcome to the Howie Games. How are you going? Yeah, good, good. I feel uh, privileged <laughs> no. to, uh, <laughs> to be here. No, you don't want to be privileged. Can just describe the scene for me because I've just spent an hour and a half in the surf, two minutes from where you live. Um, I've been surfing at Kennet River. You're a little bit further down. You are living in... Well, you're living in God's country, aren't you? Yeah, no, it's, it's beautiful here. We're maybe, uh, you know, less than 100 metres from the um, from the break just across the road. And, uh, yeah, it's very quiet. It's only about seven or eight homes here in this little hamlet uh, where I live. And, um, yeah, like you say, it's God's country. You know, I, I, I don't – I usually exercise every day and uh, it's a wonderful place to – to run or to ride, uh, whether you're riding the road or the gravel at the back or the dirt. So, um, yeah, and running the trails and the, in the uh, in the Otways couldn't <laughs> get much better. And you look incredibly fit. Like, uh, you're how old are you, Phil? Uh, now 60. 60. Yep. I reckon you got a sort of 45-year-old look about you. You've got veins sticking out of your arms, so there's, there's nothing on you. Obviously, health and fitness is still a massive part of your life. Yeah, look, I try and work out every day. Um, you know, obviously if you're traveling, that's very difficult. Uh, but yeah, you know, if I'm, if I'm, um, you know, at least six days a week, I'm exercising, which, and it is part of my life. And, uh, um, and days when you can't, when you're traveling and you haven't exercised, how do you feel? Uh, uh, just, you know, I don't know, your metabolism's, you know, bug it up and, um, you know, your appetite dwanes a little bit and, and, uh, you know, you feel, 
guilty about having uh, too many beers at mm. night. And, uh, you know, so, I mean, half the reason why you exercise is, uh, is for those things, you know, so you can enjoy maybe some of those yeah, vices which, um, you know, you'd feel really guilty about if you, if you didn't exercise. And you obviously eat pretty healthily too. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, a partner, she, she's pretty much um, – uh, not a vegetarian, but she doesn't eat much uh, meat, so we eat a lot of legumes, a lot of um, you know, a lot of beans and vegetables. We have a great garden, so we get a lot of vegetables out of the garden. Um, yeah, so yeah, I look after you, look after myself. I was doing one of these podcasts the other day with Liesl Jones, who had not swam more than five laps of a fifty metre pool since she retired. Um, this is obviously not the case with you. You still have a love affair with the bike? Yeah, well, look, when I stopped, that was back in 94, so a few years ago now, um, you know, the first 12 months I didn't ride much. I was running. I was running, running more than I am now. Um, but, yeah, after 12 months or so, I started riding a little bit more, started taking uh, more interest in the, in. Um, you know the development of the bike as it's evolved since uh, since my racing days, and uh, yeah, now I'm I'm uh, right into it, and uh, you know follow the trends and and uh, you know marvel at the old bikes that we used to ride and how the hell we got them over those mountains. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it's uh, it, it's it's part of my life now, and um, you know I mean I can go without uh, riding, but at least running or you know in the gym or, or, or whatever, but, uh, yeah, I love the exercise. So where did this all start for you? Tell me a little bit about your, your family, Phil. Um, I was actually born in England. Not everybody knows that. Uh, you know, they assume I was born in Australia, but uh, when I was very young, I, I came back to Australia with my mother, who was originally Australian, and, uh, you know, she separated from my, um, from my uh, genetic father, Right. He stayed back uh, in England. And he stayed in England and um, came back to Australia with my sister and uh, we moved into, we went to Adelaide and we uh, spent a few years there uh, where my uh, mother worked and her family was. So, uh, yeah, then she remarried and we moved to Melbourne. Uh, by then I was maybe seven. Uh, so, you know, from then right through until I left my racing career, I was I was uh, in Melbourne, so didn't really get a, my first bike. Although I'd started riding a little bit, just with neighbours' bikes. Like uh, you know, my, my uh, stepfather said that um, you know he wouldn't get me a bike until I'd stopped growing. But of course, you know, <laughs> you don't want to hear that when you're a kid because no. you're growing all the time. So I was just riding around another, you know. Uh, friends' bikes, neighbours and stuff like that, but, you know, just knocking around the neighbourhood. And, and um, yeah, it wasn't 12 until I got my first bike, which is like a three-speed, um, you know, three-speed bike. It wasn't a racing bike by any means. What colour was it? Uh, red. It was a red uh, Laurentia. Was it a magical thing for you, the first bike? Um, yeah, it was. I mean, it was, you know, bikes back then were, you know, they were made by a craftsman they weren't sort of spat out of a factory and mm. some place in <laughs> out of australia yeah um, they're actually made in in melbourne um you know by a craftsman and, and welded up and how was the bike delivered was it a was it a present or was it at the, it was, a, the shop? it was a christmas present my sister got one and i got one under the tree type job or? uh it was, might have been parked in the living room okay <laughs> <laughs> might have been parked in the living room but um, yeah, I loved I loved that bike, and uh, you know I dragged my sister all over Melbourne riding our bikes. You know it's really you know gave, gave you an extra freedom um, to get around. And um, wasn't until a couple of years later, until I was fifteen, that I saw a bike race. You know, uh, you know I'd sort of been riding around quite a bit, but uh, never seen a bike race. And then uh, one afternoon I was. I think it was after school, I was down Q Boulevard and uh, saw a, uh, a bike race around the uh, the loop up there, which they call what do they call that now? Anyway, there's a there's a loop which they do, um, and they still do it there. They still race there. Uh, but anyway, I, I saw a um, 
a gentleman on the corner, a marshal with a flag, and, and I asked him a little bit about this bike racing, you know, I was like a 15-year-old kid, what is this stuff? You know, they're going so fast, you know, do they have a crash? And, you know, I was just asking this guy and, and um, you know, he, he sort of uh, briefly explained there's a heap of clubs around Melbourne and, you know, there's the track and the road and, um, uh, you know, there's there's a Hawthorne club, but, uh, you know, go down to the local bike shop and they'll... they'll um, be able to uh, direct you to the right way. So, um, you know, I think the next day I was down in uh, down Hawthorne. What at, was it? At, what was it when you saw the racing that that hit you? That made I think you just want to the uh, the speed and seeing the lean of the corners, and uh, you know, I'd never seen, you know, I'd never seen bike race on TV, or I didn't really know it was a sport. <laughs> um, so it's fifteen. Yeah, I might have heard. I might have heard of a sport because I was at school. You had to do French, and, uh, and I'm pretty sure our French master might have mentioned the Tour de France. But you know, I didn't really. I possibly wasn't listening. If only, if only <laughs> the both was, of you knew yeah, what was yeah, to come. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but anyway. Um, you weren't listening. What were you like in school? What was what was? I was okay. I was easily distracted, and right. uh, you know, I wouldn't say I was a um, a great scholar by any means. You know, I was always like uh, you know the kid down the end of the row looking out the window, okay, <laughs> thinking of other places to be, and, and you know, I'd like to be riding my bike somewhere. Not necessarily racing, but just the adventure of you know going out into the you know, outer suburbs, and so the and bike was freedom for you. The bike was freedom and uh, adventure and. You know, I was into endurance sports at school, not so much football, but cross country and swimming and athletics. Um, you know, when it came to football and everybody's choosing, so I was always the last kid to be cho- chosen. Right, right. <laughs> but right. they knew I could run, so. <laughs> You'd be so, perfect yeah, in the modern yeah, game, yeah, Phil. Yeah, You'd be an it, asset. You know, yeah. But, um, yeah, so I just, uh, you know, went to the local bike shop. The guy said, yeah, here's the Hawthorne Club and they have meetings every Monday night or every, you know, fourth Monday the of the um, month or whatever, so I went down to the uh, a club meeting and 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 uh, joined joined up, uh, you know, without really knowing much about it. You know, by that time I was sixteen, so I started racing when I was sixteen. And uh, what was your first race? Would have been a uh, road race, like a club race, or maybe a uh, what do we call them? A combine, which is you know a couple of clubs, maybe Hawthorne and Carnegie and. Maybe Blackburn. I think it was out at Narry Warren or Narry Warren North. So, wait, well, yeah, I guess it's way out. Yeah. It is way out. But, um, uh, you know, somebody came and picked me up and, and uh, took us took us out there. And and um, I think I got last. <laughs> I think I – well, maybe it was a photo finish for last. No. no. Well, I didn't really know, you know, like I just, um, you know, I had to put together a bike and, you know, it was all bits and secondhand bits and pieces and, uh, you know, I didn't have money to go out and spend on a new bike and, um, <laughs> you know, but I was good at fiddling around with things and, uh, you know, I put together a bike and, and went out to the uh, first race and, you know, I had no idea about sitting on, sheltering out of the wind and all this sort of stuff. And um, I was 16, so I was a junior, but we used to race, you know, that we used to have handicaps, uh, I used to call them. So everybody does the same distance, but, um, you know, the slower, the new riders uh, start earlier. They might start you know, 15 minutes before the, the really fast ones, you know, on a 50K circuit or something. So, and they chase you down. And they chase you down, yeah. So uh, so that's what happened. They they chased me down. And uh, I remember hearing them. I'd never heard a bunch, like, you know, around Q Boulevard, um, you know, I was just on a corner and, and uh, you know, you'd see the riders whip around. But when you're in a bunch and or when you're riding and a big bunch comes by, you can hear the tyres and stuff like that. And I thought, what the hell is that noise? You know, just like riding along and, not, you know, I think I was by myself, you know, because I was the newbie. So I will send the newbie off bloody <laughs> 10 minutes before everybody else. <laughs> and uh, I go, what's that noise? And then... <laughs> you know, like 50 riders went by and said, ah, oh, that's what it was. <laughs> By the time I got to the finish, uh, you know, they were packing stuff up. I don't think they even registered me as finishing, you know. You know, they're possibly, you know, driving home and going, anybody see when that newbie came in? <laughs> <laughs> or how he's getting home from Harry Warren. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. So but, how, you must have 
progressed reasonably quickly in, in that sphere, I guess. Yeah, well, I did a, a few races like that where, um, you know, just handicaps and you just, you know, as a young rider, you didn't, I didn't really learn very much uh, in those type of events. And then, um, you know, the, the, uh, the, the, the club that I was in, the Hawthorne Club, which is a beautiful, great club, um, you know, there's a bit of a change in the management and the, you know, the new president took me under his arm and said, come on, Phil, we'll, we'll sort things out, you know, and just started talking a little bit about training and tactics and, um, you know, how to ride, where to ride in a bunch and things like that. And, you know, automatically I, I started improving, you know, and just all of a sudden said, oh, yeah, I, I, I get that. So, um, yeah, you know, it started meeting some friends, you know, making some friends amongst the, the group and, and uh, you know, learning learning a lot. I just became a sponge. But I didn't, you know, I didn't know anything about other than this club race. I didn't know there was, you know, I know about, I don't think I'd heard, or maybe I'd heard of the Tour de France, but, you know, I'd heard of the Commonwealth Games uh, because the the um, a couple of sons of our, the president of our club went over to Christchurch. That would have been... Only 74. 74, right. 74. Uh, his two sons went over and did uh, that was on the track, you know, so I'd heard about that and, you know, like the heroes of the club. So, uh, you know, but for me it was, you know, it was so beyond where I was at this stage. I was just trying to catch that group as they came shooting by. <laughs> so what, what, what was, so you're 16, 17 at this stage, yeah. what was life going to involve? What, what, what was uh, the plan? Well, I was uh, at school. I went to Trinity in Melbourne, yep. Trinity Grammar, and, um, you know, I was going to go to uh, university or tech school to do uh, graphic design. Hmm. Uh, you know, that was the path I was going to be taking. Uh, the cycling was just a hobby, just a pastime on the weekend, you know. I never, you know, the, the early times I wasn't training. I'd just pull the bike out at the weekends and, and, and race, you know, just getting by on um, youthful enthusiasm <laughs> and, you know, I mean, I was had some athletic ability from, you know, other things I was doing, you know, sport at school. So, uh, but then, you know, under a bit of direction from this uh, new president, uh, Ted Sanders, I, uh, you know, automatically started improving, you know, and um, eventually did bigger races and, and bunch races where you start in a bunch, scratch races they call them. Uh, and then eventually I wind up to do a Victorian time trial championship. And time trials where, you know, everybody goes off individually, so there's no bunch to be worried about yeah. <laughs> overtaking me. And yeah. uh, I guess it's a little bit like a handicap because everybody goes off at different times. But um, uh, I think it was like a 40-kilometre time trial. And going out to the race, you know, going with this guy, Ted, he says, Phil, think about, you know, I'd never ridden a time trial before. So think about a time trial, Phil, you really got to concentrate. You know, your mind can't wander, you just got to concentrate. Um, you know, don't worry about how you're going to get home or, you know, don't think about the women or any of the girls, not women at that stage, only 16 or 17. <laughs> um, just, uh, you know, just concentrate, putting power through the, through the bike, you know, um, through your legs into the road. And, uh, you know, I remember racing, you know, this time trial and, uh, you know, you wind to start wondering or start, you know, you start thinking about, oh, you know, is that another rider up there or, oh, who's that? I think I know that person, you know. And you suddenly say, oh, Ted's words, you know, concentrate <laughs> and focus and, and uh, you know, sort of bring you back on. And then I got to the finish of, the, uh, of that Victorian Championship time trial. I think it was out at Belan or somewhere. And uh, got to the end of the time trial and I had like, um, you know, 15 seconds. I was leading by 15 seconds, but, you know, I was the newbie, so I was off one of the first riders. And, mm. and um, you know, so I was in the hot seat. This was before anybody had hot seats, but anyway. So you're watching the next one. <laughs> I'm right, watching the riders come in and, oh, somebody came in, they came within, you know, seven seconds and then somebody came in four seconds and there's only two riders to go and then finally I'd won by one second, you know. Right, so you're the Victorian so champion. all of a sudden anything that Ted told me, I was, I was like leaning on every word because, right. you know, I'd come from a, you know, very much a novice uh, club rider into, you know, a Victorian champion. It's only a junior championship, so... But anyway, there's a big step step up, you know, and there's little things like that 
through, you know, those early days where you can sort of see the progression, you know, and then, you know, eventually I got onto the Victorian team and we went to, uh, you know, the national championships at the track, you know, because you do the track as well. Mm. And then, uh, I don't know. You went to a Commonwealth Games? Yeah. So was and that then, I got, then I got the Commonwealth Games. Too. 78? 78, yeah. So what was so that? That was in Edmonton. Edmonton? Yeah. And you won a gold medal there? You got a gold medal there, yep. So In the um, road race? Yeah, yep. So 200-kilometre road race. Was that so, a surprise? Like where were you going in? If there was, uh, yeah, if there look, was bookies at that stage, would they have been on Young Phil or not? Uh, they, they might have been because I was I – was, you know, it was only four years. I'd only been riding for four years, but, you know, there was certainly a progression from those early days. And, uh, you know, to get onto the Commonwealth Games team, obviously there's a selection process and I'd sort of um, done reasonably well to get onto the team. And, uh, you know, I used to hang with these these Italians, you know, being a sort of European sport. Um, you know, they're, they're just, there was this Italian family, the Sansonettis. They're out like... Uh, reservoir way in the Preston Club and um, you know they were heroes of well heroes of, of Australia I guess because they won so many Australian championships they were you know they, they were um, yeah, I think they were Australian bred but comes from Italian family so mm-hmm. anyway uh you know, there was four guys, there was a selection for four riders to go to the Commonwealth Games and two of them were the Sansonettis. They were twins, actually, uh, Sal and Remo, and then there was this me, uh, Hawthorne. Um, and then there was uh, Grindle from Queensland. So the four of us went over. It was my, well, certainly my first, you know, big trip. And uh, over the, to uh, Canada, and leading into it, we we stopped in America and we did some events there. And I'd done very well racing uh, there, winning stages. And uh, then when we went to uh, Edmonton, we had a couple of training races leading up to it, where most of the riders doing the games were were there. And I think I won both of those. And so I think, you know, the bookies. Would have I would have been you know I would have been on the first page, right, right. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I mean, and like like in many sports, the Commonwealth Games is not like it's not even like the Olympics, you know. But it's certainly not like the World Championships, you know. You haven't got many of the European countries there, you know. When many of the the cycling nations, uh, you know, Belgium, France, Holland, mm. Italy, they're not they're not at, in the Commonwealth Games, obviously. No, they do the Olympics. Uh, yeah, so. Um, but anyway, it was great, you know. Uh, you still got your medal somewhere? Yeah, yeah, I found it the other day, actually. Right. Yeah, so, um, uh, yeah, it was it was, uh, it was great for me. I mean, it was, you know, the Commonwealth Games were pretty big uh, in Australia. I mean, they still are. They're still, uh, you know, highly respected. They don't mean anything on, on sort of on cycling, cycling circles. Was, you, was your race... Back on the telly back here, do you know? Uh, yeah, it was on the telly. And Who would have um, been doing the Commonwealth Games then? Uh, I don't know who. Right. I think it was Channel 9. Okay. But uh, I haven't looked at it, but somebody sent it to me not long ago. Uh, hopefully I kept it. I think I've got, yeah, yeah. I've started to digitise a lot of my old VHS tapes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, and hopefully I've saved it. Otherwise, I'll have to search out, search it out again. But yeah, there are copies. It's pretty scratchy. It's black and white, right? Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, black and white. Uh, Seventy. I don't know when colour came in. Uh, colour so, was possibly in by then, but I think I think I remember black and white. <laughs> so, so at that stage, Phil. Actually, I just want to ask something that goes way back. Um, um, and it's. I'll just ask you, um, we've only met. You mentioned that your dad, your biological father was in England. Yeah. Did you have any contact with him after you came to Australia or not? Uh, okay, that's a whole that's a whole other story. And Is that a story you want to talk about or not? Yeah, yeah no, that's fine. Um, but if we go forward uh, a few years, it wasn't until I was like number one in the world uh, in 84 or 85, 85, that um, there was a magazine, I think it was The Guardian, English paper, came over and they did a, um, they, they wanted to do a colour piece, just a, uh, a story on me, and it was in like the good weekend sort of thing, you know, it was a cover story of oh. a sort of weekend pullout 
uh, sort of thing about, um, you know, Phil Anderson. Because every year I used to go to Britain and they used to pick up every year that, you know, I was born there. And so they'd always claim they me did. as their own, okay? Of course always, they would. You know, I went to Britain a few times, so uh, they'd always claim me. And and, uh, and so anyway, the Guardian picked up on that. And that was uh, – and so when this journalist came over to Belgium where I was living and interviewed me, he asked me, you know, sort of um, kept asking me about my uh, family. And my, and I didn't know anything about my father. I just said, well, you know, my mum and father separated and, and uh, my mother sort of lost contact. You know, there was very little, um, you know, there was no contact between my my uh, my mother and my father. So I didn't even know where he lived. All I said was, uh, you know, I know he's British and, um, you know, I think he was in the film industry. And so... Uh, and so the headlines of the article, or you know, one of the one of the captions was, uh, "Mr. Anderson, if you knew who your son was, you'd be surprised," or whatever. Right. Okay, like it was really, um, they really sort of picked up on that. And then, uh, and so the the um, the editor of the newspaper sent me a copy. You know, the week following uh, the, the the hard copy of the um, of the article, which is really nice. But then there was a letter in there, and the letter was from my father's brother. Huh. And so, and the letter said that, uh, you know, just explained that, um, you know, that if I wanted, he could put me in contact with my father and told me a little bit about him. He's now living in California and, you know, still in the film industry and, you know, he's sailing the world and all sorts of stuff, you know. And, Big um, decision to make. Yeah. And I, I said, yeah, I was bloody curious, you know. Um, and so uh, this is before... Uh, email or the internet mm. or anything like that. So everything was like fax or or uh, writing letters, you know. So uh, the next time I was in the States, which is a couple of months later, um, you know, we, we'd arranged for him to come up and see me. I was in uh, up in Seattle. I was living in Seattle. And he'd come up and, and, uh, and you know, we reunited. Well, I was very young when... when uh, mm. When he left, and so. I, I but anyway, it's. What it's, was it like? What, like? I don't want to pry. Oh, what no, was it, like it was. It was, um, it was strange. I remember calling him, uh, you know, two days before, and I said, I, said, I, haven't, even see, I haven't even seen any photos of you. How am I going to recognise you when I go to the airport? You know, do I hold a sign saying Mr. Anderson or something? <laughs> <laughs> I'm Mr. Anderson. You're Mr. Anderson. Yeah. He said, Oh no, you recognise me. I'll be wearing a you know a sailing jacket and you know got a beard and you know. Looked like a real scurvy dog, so right. um, you know, and and he stood out. And we went away and had a fantastic weekend. You know, we didn't go to my place. We went to sort of, I'd rented a cabin uh, up on Puget Sound, which is a very remote mm. area, um, up in the northwest. And um, you know, I had my my uh, wife with me and a couple of friends, and yeah, it was great. You know, and we just sort of, but it was, you know, you're meeting somebody that you. Don't really know. I mean, it's a bit like us meeting, you know. Yeah. And so you just sort of find your way. Yeah, you find your way, and you know, you just feel, find yourself talking, and you know, you can't, you know, it was not regretting anything or anything like that. Just finding stuff out about each other, and you know, where do you live, and what have you been doing, you know, for the last. You know, because I was like 25 at that age. You know. It doesn't sound like yeah. you're talking about it, that there was a great hole in your life or anything no. to that point. No, no, there wasn't. No, I mean, I didn't, I didn't, it wasn't something that, I, it wasn't something that was missing. You know, my mum uh, and my stepfather and my sister, you know, I felt like we were complete. You right. Know. You know, maybe when I was younger, when I was at school, I had a bit of a complex about it because, you know, my um, my mum took my stepfather's uh, surname, so I'd go introduce. Oh, this is my mum, and, and I'd say, "Oh, it's not Mrs. Anderson; it's okay. Mrs. Gray." You know, and you know, as a young kid, it's like, "Oh, I'm embarrassed. Oh, should I have to do this?" No, no, no. And so, but um, you know, it was fine. You know, um, I don't have any any you know feelings either way about it. And you know, we keep touch. Uh, you know, exchange Christmas cards, hmm. um, you know, and he's been over here. Uh, he hasn't been to the new place, but before, you know, the old place we had. But, um, yeah, so he's been to Australia a couple of times and, uh, you know, I've been sailing with him, you know, I've been over there. So now he lives in Northern Cal. 
you know, his place burnt down a few years ago in the fires and he's moved a bit closer to the club, a bit, a bit closer to the coast. But, um, yeah, you know, I think my my older sister, like she's maybe 63, uh, Jenny, I think she's been affected more by not having a father or, you know, has, has a whole like what you say. Um, because when she heard that I'd made contact about it, oh, she was so excited, and 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 now she's not in contact with him daily, but uh, and she's been over there. You know, she was over there. This, she's been over there half a dozen times to, okay. to see him, and he's been over uh, to see her. Um, maybe because he's a little bit older, so she may. I think she has some memories of him as a, as a child, whereas I I can't remember him. You know, so maybe that's. You know, it's a different, different. It's a different meaning for her than it is is for me. We've we've gone down a bit of a rabbit hole that I hear that I didn't expect to be going <laughs> down. But now that we're down, I I, I just ask you one further question about it, Phil. Um, I read a fascinating article four, five, six years ago about elite cyclists, and in particular Tour de France elite cyclists, and more in particular those that have won the Tour. It mentioned a series of names and they'd grown up, which is different to what you're explaining to me, they'd all grown up without fathers, whether it was Cadell or Lance. It was a whole series of them yeah. and they'd, they'd all talked in this article and it was them talking about having to prove something and a drive that the other kids didn't have as a result of their family situation at home. It was mm-hmm. a... Um, I don't think it sounds like it relates to you, but it was a fascinating article about <clears throat> all these men wanted to prove something and they had that inner desire and that's what fueled them to do what is such a demanding sport. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, maybe that, you know, maybe there's some uh, validity to, to that. Um, you know, when I look back, yeah, certainly Lance, Cadell, uh, Greg was a... Greg LeMond, another American, he won yeah. it two or three times. Uh, he was okay. Uh, he didn't have any, he didn't have any, um, you know, he didn't have any, his, his parents were fine. But, uh, no, I mean, you do have to have incredible drive. No, I mean, I, I didn't win the tour, but, but still, uh, yeah, I always felt like I had to prove something. Um, so what, what you know, was your drive? We'll, we'll get to Europe in a minute. We'll get back on the uh, cycling track here. But what was your drive when you were on the bike and you're absolutely cooked? Why would you keep going? Um, I guess I didn't want to disappoint um, those people around me, those people that, you know, when you're an amateur, there's no money. But obviously yep. once you turn pro, you have a totally different um, uh, outlook to it because uh, you know for a start you're getting paid so uh, you know you've got to I, I always believe that you have to um, deliver what you're getting paid for but but also you've got those around you who are supporting you know they're getting paid to look after you so you've got to do the right thing so it was you not wanting to disappoint those around yeah, you yeah not what don't want to disappoint but it's a responsibility you know so uh, you know just you know I always I've, I've never found motivation a problem Back to Phil in a moment. Next up on the Howie Games, on Thursday the 10th of October, we are pumped to be featuring reigning V8 supercar champion and a man who is smashing long-held records this season, Scott McLaughlin. I think it's fair to say this is Scotty as you have never heard him before, a fascinating young man who takes us deep, deep into the dark world of failure and how to overcome it. What happens then? I just start crying, just... um just, oh, I don't know what I, I was just, it's just like the hardest moment in my life. You know, I worked, I worked so hard to get to that point from when I was six years old, you know, getting sponsorships and stuff. And, and then I, I was in a position, a great team to win. And I had the big boss there, Roger, watching me. And I felt like I just, I felt like a failure. I felt like a, well, I was, I, I was a loser. Um, <clears throat> it was a lot of, lot of um, emotions. But um, I sort of pulled it in because dad was always hard on me when I was younger. He's like, if you're ever going to cry, you go on the trailer and you don't do it with anyone. You don't show your emotion because, you know, don't, no one likes a sore loser. He was always strict on me like that. So sort of pulled it all in when I was coming to the pits. But just broke down again when I walked in and basically saw everyone and CJ crying. It was like a grand final defeat for a losing team, you know, in AFL. 
So, yeah, it was um, hard. We won the team's championship, which was a very co- big thing, but everyone wanted to win the driver's championship as well. And, um, yeah, I've never been – I was so embarrassed. Rock- embarrassed? That's yeah, an unusual I was, word. Yeah, I was just like – especially when I rocked up to the gala dinner the next night, the awards dinner, like our brand low. The very dinner, next night. The next night and seeing Jamie with the championship cup and – all the highlights literally from the race in Newcastle and literally every highlight, mate. Like There was like four or five highlights and it was all my stuff-ups. The great fella that is Scotty McLaughlin on the next step of the Howie Games. Alrighty, back to Phil. So how did you, as a young bloke, because we'll get to some of your achievements and you're a trailblazer in so many ways, which is why it's a real thrill for me to sit down and have a chat with you about it. How did you end up in Europe and would you get off the plane and think, Holy hell, what, what's going on here? Because it was a European sport that you were stepping into then. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's a completely different era than now uh, because now you can flick on the TV and, and, you know, you can watch the Tour de France or you can go online and watch an interview, listen to your interview with, with uh, Cadell. You know, back then, if I wanted to find out something about bike racing or, you know, what is the sport of bike racing, you'd have to go down to the library. And uh, at the library, you'd, you'd um, you know, you'd have to, you know, you go and try and file it, find something in the files. Get on the old yeah, microfiche. The, the microfiche, <laughs> you know, and then there'd be some book and, you know, they might have to get it from another library. Cross-reference and, it. Yeah, you know, and it was... <laughs> It was, um, you know, very difficult to find information. So I didn't really know that, you know, there was such a thing as a career in, in um, you know, cycle sport. You know, I just thought it was just like, you know, playing footy or something like that. It was, uh, <laughs> and, you know, footy back in the 70s, you know, there was very little money in it. You know, I, I, I just saw it as a, um, you know, as a hobby, like I said. And it wasn't until I got over to Europe and uh, it saw... Uh, saw some of the races and, you know, I went to see <clears throat> one of the early seasons, you know, okay, step back. I got an invitation to join a club in Paris and so uh, it wasn't a pro club, just a, an amateur club, just like a suburban club and it's quite a well-respected <clears throat> club and, uh, and uh, yeah, so got the invitation and arrived in France, yeah, not knowing what to expect. You just got uh, off the plane. Just got off the plane. I was expecting somebody to pick me up. There wasn't. Uh, did you have a bike with you or not? Uh, no. Right. No, but, but the <laughs> was club no was going to supply a club. There was no one bike. at the airport? No one at the airport. I had an address and, uh, you know, so I had to take a cab, you know, which cost a fortune. I don't think I've ever been in a cab before. You know? <laughs> so, <laughs> and it was more francs than you had in your wallet? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Exactly. So, um, you know, and it was freezing cold. It was like the beginning of the year, so it was like February in in, in Paris and, uh, you know, the snow. I'd never seen snow before. Wow. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I had no idea what to expect and, uh, you know, we went down to the south of France with the club. I think there's like 15 riders and, uh, you know, there's myself and Robert Miller. As a, uh, he was a Scotsman. How was your French? Uh, well, now, at that time, I was wishing I'd... Spent a bit more attention. <laughs> more attention. Trinity. Yeah. I should have been sitting away from the window, I think. <laughs> so I struggled. But, um, you know, I mean, you're surrounded by French people, so you kind of pick it up and you sort of struggle to... It is a struggle, but eventually, you know, you start getting a bit of a... Mm. You know, you start uh, picking up the words and, uh, you know, you're always trying to... Straining yourself to hear, you know, to understand the conversation. But, um, you know, eventually you do you do pick it up, you know. Uh, so were you, were you a curiosity to these guys? Were you accepted by them? Were you a threat to them? Uh, possibly a bit of a novelty, actually. You know, you, they were very curious about, uh, you know, the faraway place like Australia. Mm. Um they they didn't really know where Australia was, you know. Obviously, they spoke English, so they used to because we spoke English. They treated like treated us like English, right? And they uh, they call you beef, beef steak. <laughs> hey, beef steak. 
<laughs> and it wasn't just myself. I mean, all the guys, even even Lance. I think Lance in his podcast last yeah. week, he was imitating uh, his experience when he was younger going over there. And they used to call him Beefsteak. <laughs> and he's American. He's not English, you know. But he spoke English. Yeah, yeah. They call him Beefsteak. But, um, but anyway, <laughs> so it's silly. So, so how do you go from there to being, you, you obviously... Yeah, well, yeah, so I got over to join a club, um, you know, and start doing well, start winning races and getting respect from, you know, my club mates and they start helping me a little bit and, uh, you know, did did very well. They have a series of, um, of races, uh, you know, where there's a point, sort of like an aggregate uh, in, in France, of races all over France and uh, it's like a point series and um, Robert Miller... The Scotsman and I, we got first and second in that, and we weren't obviously French. So, um, <clears throat> you know, so the two of us by the end of the season, uh, we'd had offers to uh, to turn pro, and in that time, we'd actually seen some professional races and um, thought, shit, this is bloody fantastic, you know, to be able to do this, and they want to pay you for it. It's bloody great, you know. <laughs> but in doing that, though, we'd throw away our. Uh, aspirations to uh, do the the uh, the Olympics because this this was uh, the year was seventy nine so the following year is eighty so Moscow. the following year is going to be Moscow and so uh, which ended up being a bit of a debacle because of the yeah uh, you know the boycotts so to say yes to the pro team you're saying no to the Olympics yep that's right wow so um, you know and I'd sort of gone it's over there forty thinking, years ago isn't it that yeah, you had yeah. to make those decisions yeah and I. You know, the reason why I went over to France was to get some experience because after doing the Com Games, the next step, you know, as a, as a royal amateur would be the uh, to the Olympics. Yeah. So, but uh, in seeing that, you know, there is you can actually make a career out of it, uh, which I did, they didn't have any here in Australia. Um, I thought, shit, you know, I might never get this offer again. You know, uh, even if you win the Olympics, but it's such a bloody lottery, uh, the Olympic Games. So uh, yeah, the caution of the wind. Both um, Miller and I both signed for the Peugeot team, and uh, what was the deal? The deal's two-year deal. I think uh, I think they offered three thousand six hundred uh, French francs, right. and uh, we pushed a hard bargain, got it for. <laughs> Four thousand uh, francs a month. So look at you, Gary like So that would be. I think I remember it was about a thousand thousand dollars a month. Okay. And, uh, and was that all your Christmases come at once? Oh, yeah. It's bloody great. You know, plus they give you up all the bikes and, uh, you know, I mean, that was, back then it was, it was, you know, you could easily live on that. Um, Where were you living? I was living in Paris. I had an apartment uh, in Paris, but that was am- as an amateur. And then uh, obviously shifting pro, uh, I'd, uh, I'd found a place I could rent uh, a bit further out from where I was living. And uh, you know, my girlfriend could move move in with me. I think it was just the two of us, yeah. But anyway, after a couple of months of living living there, we moved up to Belgium. And found, so, found and a lot better. It's it different now. When I asked you five minutes ago, how were you received by your amateur teammates? Now there's money on the table, and there's livings to be made, and yep. families to be fed. Now you're the boat from the other side of the world potentially taking these blokes' jobs, I presume. How yep. are you received in that environment? Um, again, seen as a novelty on the team because uh, instead of calling me beefsteak, they would call me kangaroo. Right. Is this where the, <laughs> your famous Skippy nickname came from? Uh, I guess so. I right. mean, um, it's you know, my first year when I joined, the, joined this uh, pro team, I think we had like 18 riders on the team, and the first year... Um, you know, all the riders want to do the tour and they only put eight riders or nine riders of that group of 18, only, you know, so they sort of cut it. And uh, I knew I wouldn't be doing the tour th- that first year. Um, so you knew what the tour was at this stage. Now yeah, we, yeah, we pro- now we I knew pro- what the tour was. Progressed. Everybody's make, making such a big deal about it. Then I got to my uh, second year and um, I started winning races you know, the small races, stage, small stage races. And does that involve a, like a prize? Is there? Yeah, yeah, there's prize money, okay. but, it, you know, it's split amongst the team. So but by the time, you know, normally there's very little. Prize money's minimal, even at the Tour de France. If you win the Tour de France, it's minimal. Okay. <laughs> it's ridiculous. It's not like the tennis or the golf right. or, or um, yeah, even football. So, 
So anyway, uh, you know, I started winning races, so get to selection time and they couldn't really leave me out of the of the team. And so uh, there'd been Australians, there'd been many great Australians, even uh, like a Hubert Hoffman mm. um, back in the late 20s and early 30s. I just finished reading a book there. Um, he uh, he actually uh, rode two Tour de France's and, you know, they go back to the to the very first Tour de France's. So, but... Um, there hadn't been anybody for any Aussies do it for a number of years, and so it so, was a. Um, so you were selected for 981. 981. Yeah. 981. Yeah, it was my first Tour de France, and uh, and so it was going to start down the south, down in Nice. They had a prologue, just a short time trial, and then it was going to go in a uh, clockwise direction, heading over to the Pyrenees and up north over the Cobbles and and uh, down through uh, through the Alps and then back to Paris for the finish. So it was going to. Kind of do a lap of France. So, so before we get to how you performed in that first Tour de France, tell me in the early eighties, uh, in the early eighties, what was the Tour de France? What was involved? What was your day to day? What was the day to day? in the Tour. Yeah. Um, not that much different than what it is now. Big crowds. Big crowds. Pretty much the same. Maybe not quite the same size crowds, but they're always. They're always big, they're always right across the road. It's always, you know, uncontrollable. You know, now they had the barriers. Yeah, I'd say the crowds are bigger now. Right. Uh, certainly a lot more uh, international spectators. You know, back then it was more the French, you know, the bordering countries, whereas now you get a lot of Aussies, mm. you get a lot of Americans, a lot of Brits. Maybe you with one of your tour groups, which we'll get to later on. There we go. People, <laughs> people from all over the world. You know, back then you wouldn't, you know, you'd see flags from different areas of France. You know, you'd see the Britannia from Brittany and, you know, down the south, or the, the, you know, people from Italy and that. But you wouldn't see, you'd never see an Australian flag. You'd never see, you <laughs> know, now you see flags from everywhere, mm. Eastern Bloc, or well, former Eastern Bloc countries and, you know, flags you don't even recognise. You know, Asia, um, Columbia, it's crazy. So you get up in the morning. What's what's Phil having for breakfast in oh, the early eighties, preparing for a day on the bike? Steak. Steak. <laughs> this is what I want to know, Phil. Steak. Steak. Jeez. So those buddy, those Frenchies, you should be calling them beef steaks, yeah. eh? So a couple of steaks to get things going in the morning. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Something to get the arteries going. <laughs> right, and then uh, you, you tra- get transported to the stage, and you you ride. Yeah, you know, you obviously ride your guts out, and we'll get your performance. Okay, the, the <laughs> ride sta- your steak out. Yeah. <laughs> you, you, the the stage comes to an end, late in the arbor, and then then what happens? Like you know, now we're warm down and gels and massage, and what what was happening yeah, in your day? There was no ice ice baths back right, then. Right. No. no. So um, yeah, basically, there's always. Um, you know, you have some responsibilities with the press. You know, if you've been doing a reasonable way, you've got to do interviews, you know, press protocol. Uh, if you've been, you know, you might have been up on the podium, uh, doping control, that's always been there. Then, uh, yeah, back to the hotel, uh, something to eat, massage, you know, dinner. And, More uh, steak and or not? We could have steak, yes. <laughs> Plus, it, yeah, it's always... There's always flesh in there somewhere. Right. <laughs> There's always numerous, but yeah, big meals, big meals, and that. Oh, look now, teams. Uh, a lot of the teams have their own chefs, so they have their own food van. Um, you know, whole. You know, they have big staff. I think. I think uh, the teams now have staff of forty or fifty people, which wow. is uh, huge. You know, we used to have staff of of two to one, which is maybe um, 18 or 20 staff on top of the riders, but now it's just gone to another level. And how how hard is the Tour de France? Oh, look, it's, it's, um, it's, it's very hard, but you've, it's not like you just go from a sedentary life to no. into the Tour de France. You've been doing other events leading up to it, which prepare you for it. You know, usually there's, you might have, well, we used to, you know, doing both sort of the Giro and the Tour de France were was was quite a few people used to do that. Whereas there's less that do it now. You know, they may seem to make a big deal about it now. But you know, obviously something like that was was good preparation. Uh, you know, other races like Dolphinet, which go for a week. So uh, you know, there's there's events which 
which uh, prepare you for the Tour de France. Not like you're just going from doing one-day races to suddenly doing a 21-day race. Um, but still, the Tour de France is, in, in itself is, is uh, you know, obviously very very demanding and uh um, it can be hot very it can tough. be yeah. snowing yeah. it can yeah. be yeah it's uh it's three weeks in the middle of summer um and it always encompasses uh the two big mountain ranges of the alps and the pyrenees and then you know sometimes it hits some of the other mountain ranges too there's some others over in the um northeast of france uh as well which you have to go through from time to time so um, yeah, it can be windy, it can be raining. Um, yeah, Where's the know. joy? <laughs> Where is the, the joy? joy? There is, must be joy. The joy is when it stops. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like banging your head against a wall. Exactly, yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> so tell me about your first tour, which was a remarkable tour and you will all have, always have the title as the first, people say the first Australian, but my understanding is the first non-European to wear the yellow yeah during the race which is quite an extraordinary thing yeah no uh it was it was 81 uh was like i said starting in nice and um uh already in the prologue i think it was like an eight kilometer uh time trial along the promenade Anglais, past the airport going out towards antibes and to it turned around and came back come back and i think even in the in the prologue i'd done okay i think i'd finished you know, like 20th, you know, certainly on the, in the results sheet, I was on the first page. And so uh, then on like day uh, four, we had a, uh, a team time trial uh, where the team rides together uh, in a time trial against all the other teams. And the Peugeot team, which I was in, we'd come second in that. And uh, we were beaten by the Dutch rally team. Uh, and so day five, the following day, um, was uh, the first mountain day. And I'd never really ridden in the, in the mountains before. Uh, I'd been over the Dandenongs. <laughs> to me... To, over the Dandenongs? To, you tell me five to, minutes ago to, you prepared for this. But, uh, over the Dandenongs. But, uh, you know, for me, Glenferry Row was a big hill. <laughs> <laughs> it's not the Danny Nongs and outdoors. I'm not sure we're talking the same yeah, postcode. Yeah. If you so, um, you know, I didn't really know what to expect. You know, everybody's, you know, it's nice. Everybody knows, even though there was, you know, we didn't have the technology back then. We did have these little cards in your pocket, which you take took every day. It has the profile of the race, so you know that there's mountains coming up. It's not right. a secret. Right, I'm trying <laughs> and, looking at the card. Yeah. So, uh, but you know, I hadn't done reconnaissance or anything like that. Uh, I certainly wasn't, you know, it's the, the it's usually the riders that, um, you know, the riders are going to really figure in the race, you know, might spend some time going over parts of the course. But, you know, I was in Yubi, a bit like those first races out at Nary Warren. Yeah. <laughs> <I didn't, laughs> waiting really, for the peloton to yeah, run you waiting down. waiting for the peloton to take off on me. And uh, so in the day, day five, mountain day, and I remember – I remember, uh, you know, the pace and the bunch was getting faster and faster and faster. I thought, geez, these bloody mountains, where are they? You know, I remember sort of sitting up, taking my hands off the bars, sitting up and looking across everybody's heads, you know, and they're just going like bloody animals. <laughs> 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 where the hell are these bloody mountains, you know? You wanted and them I asked, I asked, you know, a colleague on the other side of the bunch, I'd say, what the fuck is going on here? Where's this bloody, uh, where are these mountains? And, uh, no, and he, you know, and he, he uh, says, no, 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 you got to look, stop looking up there. you got to look up in the sky. And I looked up and you could see above the clouds, you could see these mountain peaks. I thought, holy crap. <laughs> <laughs> Suddenly, you know, like the hairs at the end of my back were bloody standing on end. I thought, shit, no wonder everybody's... <laughs> so, you know, I put my, put my head down and my ass up and bloody, you know, <laughs> joined the stampede. And everybody's like rushing for the bottom of the bloody mountain, you know. Right. So he turned right up this bloody tiny road, you know, and there's like big screech of brakes and everybody was like bloody... You know, smell of rubber. I think it was a smell of shit as well. So we turned that corner <laughs> and, uh, you know, suddenly it's all single file and, you know, they eased up somewhat. But, um, you know, and then there are all these gaps opening. I thought, these idiots are bloody leaving all these gaps, you know. Uh, you know, and I felt, I found myself sort of leapfrogging all these groups. 
And finally, we got to the top of the first mountain, you know, we had like four mountains this day, and uh, there's only half the field left. So we'd gone from 200 riders down to 100, and then whistling down the other side, uh, down this descent. I'd never been on a bloody mountain descent. I, I was aroused. <laughs> right. I, 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 I love that descent. I know, you know, and I still love descent. I was aroused. That's right. Now we're getting to what you ride your bike. Yeah, yeah. There we go. You know, I made a real mess of myself. So <laughs> down that bloody mountain, and um, and. Uh, and then we get to the second mountain and the same thing happened, you know, riders are getting dropped and, you know, I thought, yeah, you know, well, the whole time I was just trying to, I was sort of overtaking riders because I couldn't really fight it for the front and so I was sort of fighting from the back and and uh, we got to the top of the next mountain and uh, I looked behind and, and once again, you know, we'd cut in half so only 50 riders left and down, uh, uh, tearing down a descent and... Um, you know, and then we started the next climb. My director comes up in the car, and it's no uh, radios at this stage. No, no, no radios. Right. No, shit, so no. he literally drives up beside. Yeah, he you. drives up beside, and uh, you know, you could recognise every car, uh, every team had their own, um, you know, car following them, and they'd have a, they have a klaxon or a, you know, like at the horn of the car, they'd have a, um, <laughs> a, a special siren each. So I'd say, oh shit, that's my team. Go, I'll go back. So you drop back a little bit, and um, yeah, the director and he says, "Hey, Philippe, you know, you've got to, you're meant to be looking after um, Philippe. <laughs> you're meant to be looking after Jean Rene, our bloody, you know, our bloody our uh, leader, our team, yep. our team leader. Where is he?" And I go, "Oh shit, yeah, that's right." <laughs> said, uh, you know, I looked behind him, and I was at the back. I said, oh, yeah, where is he, you know? I said, I'll ease up because I'm pretty stuffed up here. <laughs> I've been trying to keep up with all these guys. I'll take a bit of a break and I'll wait for him. And he said, no, no, he's two groups back. You stay there, you know. But he was really pissed off. He said, you know, you're meant to stay with him. You come and see me tonight, you know. You didn't follow instructions. I thought, holy shit, you know, I'm in trouble now. <laughs> and so, you know, so we get to the top of the, um, you know, the second last climb. And, uh, yeah, there's only like 20 riders left, you know, and I thought, shit, you know, can't believe I missed bloody Jean Rene. <laughs> so, and, but I, I started recognising these guys around me. They were like heroes of mine, you know, guys I had on my posters of my, my room back in Kew, where wow. I was in my bedroom. And uh, I thought, geez, you know, I'm, so, I'm surrounded by, you know, heroes or, you know, real stars of the sport. And, uh, you know, I'd never seen them live, let alone, you know, up close and personal like this. And these guys were like sneezing on me and <laughs> pissing on each other and say, oh, it's really open. But anyway, then we get down the last ascent and once again, you know, it was fantastic, you know. <laughs> and I was getting the hang of it, you know, and, and uh, we get to the last, you know, it's going to be a mountaintop finish of the ski resort. And, um, <laughs> So we go up this, uh, you know, and these are clients which are in the race every year, but, you know, for me I couldn't even pronounce them, let alone, you know, know what to expect. And, uh, you know, and there's crowds and and uh, in the end there was a flurry of attacks at the bottom and, you know, one guy got away, um, Lucen Van Epp, a great, you know, uh, Belgium climber, and he got away. And, uh, you know, the guys look at me and I thought, shit, don't look at me to chase him. You know? <laughs> I feel like like I'm, you know, looking down on myself and I'm not actually there, right. you know. It's just like that a fantasy. Yeah. So, don't, <laughs> so uh, you know, I was just following and, and uh, but in the end there was only two of us left. So, you know, um, and it was Bernard Hino who'd won the tour the year before and myself. A legend you know, of the sport. Yeah, yeah, a legend of the sport. You know, he ended up winning five tours. So, um, you know, for me, I sort of, uh, you know, he'd try and get away. I, I think he thought maybe I was just somebody from the crowd. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but, you know, so he'd accelerate. I sort of like slowly but surely peg him back and, and you know, I'd come up next to him and, you know, I think my jerseys were too big and, you know, my bike was a bit bloody big for me and I kind of come up next to him, big lanky kid from Australia, <laughs> you know. And, and, you know, come up next to him and try and, you know, put him into the, not into the barrier, but just try and put a bit of pressure on him that he'd slow down, you know, because, was, you know, he was going pretty hard. I was, wasn't that comfortable. <laughs> well, obviously the other 195 guys were all shelled off the back. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I had the fear of having to, you know, 
to speak to my director that night about Jean Rene. Who's twenty k back down the road? Yeah, yeah exactly. Stage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, eventually, uh, you know, we got to the top, and you know, we came down the last the last bend, and you know, you know, and I said, you know, I didn't know. And, oh, we start sprinting now. Okay, we start sprinting, and and uh, you know, loosened the, the Belgian guy. He'd won the stage, and and uh, he know just pipped me for the line for a second, so I got third. But because the Peugeot team had beaten uh, Hino's team, it uh, gave me the jersey that night. So, so that ha- was, ha- um, how do you find out? How do you find out you got the jersey? Yeah. Oh, suddenly bloody everybody's slapping you on the back and high-fiving you. And I say, what was that for? <laughs> but anyway, uh, no, nah, I mean, I've, you know, I'd figured it out uh, pretty bloody quickly. But um, it, It's a massive deal now. W- what's made of the yellow jersey, the Malo de Jean, whatever you want to call it, the rider that has it at that stage? What, like, what 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 is what does it symbolize well it, you know now today yeah. you're on every news service around the world yeah when you're in in the yeah. yellow what was the significance of the yellow then for you well i didn't i didn't uh, i didn't really know what to expect i wasn't really prepared for it you know for me uh, you know i knew it was bigger than winning the uh, peninsula 3 day tour down here <laughs> Yes, Representing yeah. the Hawthorne Club. Yes. Hawthorne Club had a bit of yellow in it, you know, right. jersey. But uh, no, I knew it was going to be. Um, I knew it was going to be uh, pretty big. But you know, suddenly there was, um, you know, a number of Australian uh, press which came over because it's always around the same time as Wimbledon. You know, it was like the first week, so it's always uh, you know early in July. Yeah. And so um, you know, a couple of journalists came over, and uh, so that was. That was nice. Uh, you know, suddenly you sort of, you know, shuffled off and you, you know, you're, um, you go to the, you know, to the uh, press area and you're being interviewed and then you go up on the stage and they give you a jersey, you know, podium girls, nowhere near as attractive as what they are now from my memory. But <laughs> Been upgraded now. <laughs> upgraded, that's right. Um, you know, and I remember going to, uh, they have a, a, a stage, a television um, stage set up uh, where they do a live show, a bit like after the game sort of thing, you mm-hmm. know, and you still got your bloody jersey on and your clip-clop bloody shoes, uh, you know, and you're sitting down there and, and uh, you know, they they saw it as a real novelty, you know. It had been the first time somebody from outside of Europe had yeah. ever got the yellow jersey, but... For, for them, it may as well have been having like an alien, like a, a, somebody from a Martian come in and, and take the yellow jersey because they uh, they were asking me, they didn't ask me about, you know, beating, you know, for the yellow jersey. They, they were asking me about Australia, what sports there are there and, <laughs> and uh, you know, I couldn't understand everything they were saying and then suddenly this guy came in with a, uh, with a map of the world and, uh, and it was like, you know, like something you might have at school, a, a sort of a map of the world. And, and uh, in the middle was France. And France took up like 25% of the, site, of the globe, <laughs> of okay? Indeed. And, and uh, in Australia, there was a, sorry, down in the, uh, in the, in the you know, southwest corner of this map, there was, there was Australia. It looked like tiny. <laughs> it looked like a, a tiny Pacific island. And uh, I said, I couldn't even recognise the shape of it. But anyway, yeah, that's Australia down there. So you like, pointed to it on the yeah, map, on, on the, the telly. Yeah, yeah. And it's down there, in the south, down, down there. That's where it came from, Melbourne. I said, <laughs> oh, you know, they said, oh, it's cycling a big there. And I said, no, no, it's cricket or football. <laughs> and, um, yeah, but, uh, so, yeah, so it was funny. It all- so that was my very first uh, getting the yellow jersey and, and up on the stage and, uh, yeah, it was funny. And the, and the guy that was holding the map, he was like the organiser of the tour. Um, you know, I didn't know it at the time, but, but uh, you know, the next year, you know, pretty much the same. And uh, I knew everybody, you know, I knew all these guys. They only knew me as Skippy, but I knew, <laughs> you know, Levitin, he was the uh, organiser of the Tour de France and he was actually up on stage and he wow. was bringing the map out. But, um, yeah, so what does it mean? Well, in hindsight, it means everything. Well, it's, in it's, hindsight, but I didn't realise it then, you know, like a, yeah, it's why you are seen as a trailblazer. Yeah, now. exactly. Yeah, but I didn't know that at the time, and I knew, you know, it was 
Tour de France, but you know it wasn't. Well, ring- I wasn't even winning the stage. I was, you know, getting the jersey. Did you ring home or anything? Or um, no, I don't think I rang home. Right. I think maybe a telegram. I think I maybe I even got a telegram from Prime Minister. I can't even remember. You right. Know, so yeah, there was some some there was some some communication, but I don't think it was phone calls. Phone calls from the press, <laughs> maybe. Uh, you know, like phone and everything back then was really expensive. And, you know, I wasn't I wasn't making huge money. Like most people who are getting yellow jersey these days are making a million dollars minimum. Right. Wasn't <laughs> even, the case. Even before they get the jersey. But wasn't but, the case. No, no, I was still on my uh, 4,000 right. uh, okay. French francs, so less than $1,000 a month. And I reckon that, that um, <laughs> I'm not massive historian, especially with cycling, but you get the white jersey there for the best, Young, young rider, rider. Yep. and then next year was it the next year you backed it up where you had nine days yeah, in a row days, in the yep, yellow. Yeah, yeah. So, so I got the yellow jersey up there on Planet Day, which is a ski resort. Actually, had a stage finish there this year, and Quintana won the stage. Yeah, like it was in this last week. Um, yeah, so Quintana won this year, and uh, oh, on the same stage, the same stage, yeah. But um, so anyway, the stage after I got the yellow jersey, so you get the yellow jersey on the stage, and then the next day you're wearing the jersey. So next day is a time trial, similar to the time trial they had three or four days ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, the very last it was penultimate stage this year uh, down there in the southwest near Po. And um, anyway, they always talk about the uh, the power and the strength that the yellow jersey gives you. Okay, like. I was, I mean, I was okay rider. Obviously, I, I was on the on the team to do the Tour de France, and uh, and in the prologue, I'd finished. You know, I said twentieth in the time trial. Okay, but uh, anyway, I backed it up on, on two days. Uh, so the next day in the uh, time trial, I got third in my first uh, time trial in the Tour de France. It was pretty good. I mean, I'd done wow. I keep talking about the Peninsula three-day tour. Yeah. <laughs> I'd won the time trial there, so I was very experienced. But, uh, you know, to think, uh, let's see, who won this? Who got third the other day? Uh, Froome got second. Uh, but, you know, um, to come out of nowhere. But they say the power the yellow jersey gives you, though, you know, is the responsibility and, and what it represents, even though I didn't understand you know, the significance of it, um, you know, I, I thought I'd rode, rode pretty well to get third in you know, a time trial on my first Tour de France. That's the end of Part A of Phil Anderson. Please tune in to Part B as the stories, the crazy stories, really begin to flow. See you there. And we can do it if we try, try, try. If we try, try, try. Try, try, try. Listener.